Amen. Y'all can be seated. Uh, preschoolers, y'all can make your way to the back of the room. We got Mr. Corey, Ms. Chandler back there. Head on to your class. If you're staying in the room, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. As Tim just read, we are in verses 25 through 30 this morning, continuing our series, considering how we can be more joyful Christians, how we can be a more joyful church, how we can stand as a counterculture to the world that just takes sorrow and negativity as a given and instead be a bastion of hope and joy in this weary world. This is what we're looking at by digging into Philippians. We're going through it verse by verse. We've reached verses 25 through 30. Now, this morning, we're going to see something that I think we all know as a cliche, but I don't know that we actually embrace. And it's the reality that the Christian life is a journey. You've, you've heard that probably before, that, that the Christian life is a journey. Um, the theme shows up a lot in Philippians. The word isn't used, but the theme is, is present. We actually saw a little bit of it last week. Wasn't it a little surprising that Paul said that his joy depended on the prayers of the Philippian church? So because of your prayers for me, I have this hope in future salvation. That shows that the Christian life is a journey, even for the Apostle Paul, because he needed help to get to a joyful place. He needed help from others. He wasn't there. Other people came alongside him and prayed for him and helped him to get there. That's a journey. The Christian life is a journey. We're looking at Philippians 1, 25 through 30 today to see how we can rejoice in the journey of the Christian life. Because a lot of times when we think of the Christian life as a journey, we think, well, it's really hard right now, but the prize at the end is so worth it, just keep going. And there's a sense in which that is true. But is there also a sense in which the journey itself, whether easy at times or difficult, painful, sorrowful, can it also be a joyful journey? I think remembering that our lives in Christ are like a journey, just remembering the fact of that actually does help us find joy. You see, we experience so much anxiety and, and most likely some measure of spiritual depression over this simple fact that we are not what we know we should be. Have you ever felt this way? Just, just anxious or, or sad over the fact that you know where you are spiritually. You know where you are. You, you know what your life currently looks like. And you also know what it should look like. You look to the scriptures and you see a standard of, of life that should be yours. And then you look at your own life and it doesn't line up. And it causes us to be anxious. Maybe I'm not really a believer. Or it causes us to, to feel depressed. I, I keep failing. I keep failing. I keep failing. How often have you worried or just lamented that you're not good enough, strong enough, smart enough, or accomplished enough as, as a Christian? When you think about your life in Christ, do you think that you are following Jesus as you should? And for most of us, the answer is a resounding no. What do we do with that answer? 
I'm not saying that we should change the answer, that you should say, oh, no, no, just think more positively about it. And the answer may be no. I'm not following Jesus as I should. And if the answer is no, we need to answer no. The question is, what do we do with that? How do we avoid just falling into a pit of despair? How do we avoid losing an assurance of our own salvation? How can we actually be joyful in the midst of a reality that we are not yet what we should be? The Apostle Paul viewed the Christian life so differently than we intend to because when we start to think that way, when we start to feel that way, that our current status, our current spiritual state as a believer is just the end-all, be-all, and we're momentary Christians, and we forget that the Christian life is a journey, that's when anxiety, depression sets in. Paul viewed the Christian life very differently because he viewed it as a journey. We may not be what we should be right now, but our life in Christ is a journey. We're meant to keep marching forward, even though there will certainly be rivers to crosses and mountains to trek. There's joy in this journey because as we make progress, we start to see more and more of Jesus in us. I want you to look at verse 25. Convinced of this. What's he convinced of? Well, last week we talked about it. Paul had this tension in his heart. Do, do I want to keep living or do I want to just, you know, get a death sentence so that I can go and be with the Lord? He was torn on that. Because he knew the superior worth of being with Jesus. But he also knew the benefit that others would have from his continued ministry. And so he says, you know, in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He loves the Philippians so much and he wants to see them continue to grow because the Christian life is a journey and there's progress to be made that he wants to stay with them. So he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For what purpose? He says, for your progress and joy in the faith. And by the way, the Philippian church, they were not like the Corinthians, Paul's not writing a letter to people who are just way off base. And he's still with this church that he loves, that he admires, that he, that he encourages in the early parts of this letter with how well they are doing. He still says, I'm here for your progress. I'm, I'm here for your continued growth. And then after that, I'm here for more continued growth. And, and even more after that, your progress and joy in the faith. That's what I'm here for. That's what's driving me to want to continue living for your sake, even though I know it would be better for me to be in heaven with the Lord. I want to be here because I want to be a part of your progress. Paul took great joy in the journey of the Christian life. And there is much joy to be found there. And, and I think... It's because of two things that he shares in this passage. There are two aspects of the Christian journey that fuel joy in our hearts. The first is the journey's end. The journey's end. And when I use the word end, I mean end in the sense of what is the chief end of man? Purpose. Goal. So the journey's end. As we begin this, this journey in Christ, what is our true north? What's our true north? What is our purpose? Where are we headed? And then secondly, the journey's means. Means. So the journey's end is is something that fuels joy in our hearts. And the journey's means. How we calibrate the compass. How we get there. How we live the Christian life. So the end 
and the means. Both on this journey fuel joy in us, and we need both. So let's look at them one by one. Joy in the journey's end. Listen, Paul says that he desires to keep working toward the progress and joy of the Philippians' faith. Now, a a natural question is, to what end were they progressing? What are they progressing toward? I'm here for your progress. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything unless you know what you're progressing toward. You know, if, you're, if you ever have managed people and, and you encourage someone with their good progress, you have to have some type of standard that you're using to evaluate whether or not they're progressing or not. What, what, are, they, what, what are they progressing toward? And so it, he encourages them, I'm here for your progress. Well, what end are they progressing toward? What is the purpose of our progress in the faith? What's the purpose of this journey? And he gives it to us. The end of the Christian's journey is to develop a manner of life worthy of the gospel. He says it in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're going to stop right there. That is the journey's end, that's the purpose. That's the goal of the Christian life. This is what he wanted them to progress toward, to develop a manner of life. So what's he talking about here? A way of life, a culture. Develop a culture within yourself, within your church, that is worthy of the gospel. That's why we're on this journey, to develop that type of life, a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, so far in this letter, Paul has been describing his situation. You've noticed that, the first three sermons in the series, all about Paul. And he's sharing his experiences, what he's going through. He even takes us into the inner workings of his mind and his heart. And now, he shifts. In verse 27, we have the first command in the whole letter. The first command. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He shifts and he tells the the Philippian believers to do something. Now let's ask and answer. What is a manner of life worthy of the gospel? Because it's pretty clear here, this is is the center. This is actually, probably, I read a lot of commentators this week that said, this verse is the thesis statement of Philippians. This is a thesis statement. And much, if not everything, that comes after this flows out of this initial statement that for us to only let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want you to notice something. If you have an ESV Bible in particular, and maybe other translations have this as well, but I do know the ESV has it. Do you notice the footnote after the word worthy? There's a footnote there. Okay, go down to the bottom of the page uh, and and look at the the footnote. I'm so glad that the Bible still have footnotes and not endnotes. The books now that do the endnotes, I know it makes the pages really clean, but I'm so, I'm just less likely to, to look for the source if I have to flip to the end of the book to, to find it. I like seeing it right at the bottom here. So I'm thankful the ESV did this or I might have missed it if I had to flip to the end. I just, I don't have time for that, James. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I can't. I can't be flipping to the end of the book. It takes like five seconds. Um, um, they're precious five seconds. If you look down at the footnote, though, it says, Greek, this is what mine says, Greek, only behave as citizens worthy. Now, what this means is this is the literal 
uh, translation of the Greek. This is what it actually is communicating. Because there's a Greek word that's used that's more of a political word. It has the roots of uh, the word from which we get our word city. And, and so uh, it, he's essentially saying only behave as citizens worthy. Um, and actually, if you take the original word order into consideration, you could translate this verse or this part of the verse like this. Only worthy of the gospel of Christ live as citizens. That's, that's the order that it does. Because if you're unfamiliar, uh, when we ta- take something from Greek or any other language, from Greek especially to English, the word order changes because if, if we kept it in the original word order, it wouldn't make sense in English. But, but the word order in Greek is really important. So it says, only worthy of the gospel of Christ live as citizens. Now, the theme of citizenship is going to come up again later in chapter 3. But right here, this language of citizenship helps us understand what a manner of life worthy of the gospel really means. You see, Paul is intentionally using citizenship language because he knows his original audience so well. He knows them. This is what's so beautiful about these letters. Was the letter of Philippians written for you and me? Was it? Oh, don't trip yourself out. Yes, it was. It was written for all Christians for all time. It was. But don't you just love that a letter that's being written, that's going to that's gonna pass down through the generations, that's inspired of the Holy Spirit, was actually specifically written to a local church? And Paul knew them so well. He has a pastor's touch here. He knew them so well that he even chooses in explaining a truth. He chooses this language. It was important to them because Philippi held the special status of a Roman colony. And that meant that the people of Philippi, if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were also a citizen of Rome, which in that day was a big deal, a huge deal to have the status and protection and benefits of being a Roman citizen. Philippi was also a city that had a large military presence. So Roman military uh, members were, were in uh, and out of Philippi a lot. And Roman citizenship was a cause for much pride among the people of Philippi. And so notice what Paul's doing here. Right at the beginning, he is challenging his dear, beloved friends in Philippi to remember that they had a different, more ultimate citizenship under a different, more ultimate king. And that's what, that's what he wants them to get right at the beginning. And this is what uh, Gordon Fee, he's a Bible scholar, he, he says about this. He said, Paul now uses the verb metaphorically, not meaning live as citizens of Rome, although that's not irrelevant, but rather live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. You see, doesn't it start to clarify a little bit? A man are worthy of the gospel. Citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven. Live in in Tupelo. Live in your neighborhood. Live in your workplace as a worthy citizen of heaven itself. Gordon Fee, he goes on to say this. As Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia. I love this so much. Check this out. So the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi, whose members were to live as its citizens in Philippi. 
So, so track, track with this, this train of thought. To develop a manner of life or a way of life or a culture worthy of the gospel, that means to live on earth, to live in the United States, to live in Mississippi, to live in Tupelo as citizens of heaven. Develop a way of life that is becoming, that is worthy, or that is up to the standard of the gospel. Paul's just saying, live on earth as you would in heaven. He's he's saying, in the church, develop a culture that represents the culture of heaven well. The gospel, he says, not family, religious, or national expectations or traditions. The gospel is the standard by which we measure our conduct in the world. Why? Because of where our citizenship, our ultimate citizenship lies. Because of where we ultimately belong. We ultimately belong to the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, let me ask you. How many of y'all rode a bus to school growing up? Any bus riders in here? Yes. All right. Okay, cool. Um, So my dad, I I didn't ride a bus that much because my dad drove a bus. And I know that seems backwards, but um, he didn't want me on the bus that much. And he's never really told me why, and I'm I'm good with that also. Um, But also, I didn't want to wake up at 5 a.m. either to to go to school. So that that was also another part of it. Um, But he did. He was was a bus driver. He was a PE teacher. uh, He was a a basketball coach. And so uh, being all those things, he actually drove a bus a lot. He had a route in the mornings. He had a route in the afternoons. And any time our basketball team traveled... He was the one that would, would drive the bus. And one thing I do remember, any time, any time I was on his bus, whether I actually did have to go with him early and we were, we were on his route, or we were traveling for a basketball game, he would always say, always say, first thing he'd say with the people who were on the bus, he would say, do you see the name on the side of this bus? Almost like that was his way of saying, who do you think you are, Okay. Because all that matters, your name doesn't matter today. Um, your seat, 22. Um, your name doesn't matter. But you know what name does matter? The name that's on the side of this bus. You see the name that's on the side of this bus? It says East Burnstead Independent Schools. That's what it says. With our basketball team, if we ever had like our school logo or whatever on our, on our stuff or a sweatsuit or, or a uniform or something, he would, he would always remind us, be like, okay, your name on the back doesn't matter. Do you see the name right there? That's what matters. And he would say, how we act on this bus reflects on our school before it even reflects on us. It reflects on the school. So he'd tell us, he'd be like, let's behave in a way that shines a positive light on our school. Now, it was really powerful. It was a great word. I hate to tell him, that did not stop us on basketball trips in the back of the bus from prank calling Papa John's because we, we definitely did that. Um, so, but, you know, they didn't really know who was calling, and so it was, it was, it was okay. Um, but uh, it was powerful. It was a good word. And this is sort of what Paul's getting at. You belong to King Jesus. His name is stamped on your life. And your name is counted as a citizen of his kingdom. So, live accordingly. Speak and act and work and play in all that you do. Do it in a way that reflects well on him. I love how D.A. Carson says it. He says, conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Conduct that's worthy of the gospel promotes it. 
Because people see your manner of life and they're attracted, they're drawn to the love and compassion and mercy that they see in you. And, and so this is what we need to consider. How do we practically start to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? We start to see that this is actually a comprehensive discipleship strategy. Our progress in the faith is a journey toward gospel-worthy living, which means we have to do at least three things, at least these three things. First, we have to submit to Jesus as our ultimate authority. He's the ultimate authority. That's what he's telling the Philippians here. He's not telling them to revolt against Nero and the, the Roman authorities. That's not what he's telling them to do. He's not saying count your Roman citizenship as rubbish. That's not what it is. He utilized his own uh, Roman citizenship to his benefit. Paul did at times. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Jesus is your ultimate Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is the ultimate king. His, your citizenship is, is important in Rome, but it's not ultimate. Your citizenship in heaven is what's ultimate. So what should be driving your conduct? What should be driving the way that you think about things, the way that you make decisions as a family? It shouldn't be anything ultimately other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, we have to submit to the authority of Jesus. He's our king. We call this in our church gospel doctrine. We need it. We need the doctrine of the gospel as our standard for what we believe and how we think about things that are happening in the world. We have to obey the word of God. This is how we progress in the faith. The second thing we absolutely have to do, we have to align our lifestyle. We have to align our behaviors. We have to align our thoughts. We have to align our words with King Jesus, with his heart. We have to. We have to align our lives with his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion. And what do we call that here in our church? We call it a gospel culture. When we see each, when we love each other, when we're merciful with each other, when we forgive each other, when we confess sins, when we serve each other, when we gather up and we pray over each other and we spend time interceding for each other, even at home, that reflects the culture of heaven on earth. And it reflect, because it reflects the heart of Jesus. So if we're going to progress in the faith, if we're going to progress and have a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel, we have to align our character with the character of Jesus. We have to align our words, our thoughts, our actions with his. And then finally, one more thing we absolutely have to do, we have to spread the fame of King Jesus. So we have to submit to him, we have to live like him, and we have to spread his fame. We do this through evangelism. We do it through supporting missionaries. You may want to do it this summer by going on the trip to New Jersey that Brandon talked about earlier. But we, we promote the gospel in our lives. Here at Trice, we call it gospel mission. These three, three things, it's a comprehensive discipleship strategy. This is how we become more and more like Jesus. This is how we develop a way of life that's consistent and worthy of the gospel. This is what we should be aiming for. Now, how does such a pursuit give us joy? Because, and we're going to see it in just a second, this is all going to require quite a bit of work. It's, it's, it's not easy. If, if you're wanting something that's easy, you're in the wrong room. This isn't easy. It's not easy to develop a gospel culture. It's not easy to continue to remain committed to true and healthy gospel doctrine. That's not easy. And it's not easy to, to spread the fame of Jesus. It's much easier to, to just sit on the sidelines and never speak his name. This isn't easy. It's going to take work. But how is it joyful work? Well, imagine, just imagine, if, 
your default in life, your default responses, your default thoughts, your, your default reactions, if, if all of that was calibrated to the authority, heart, and glory of Jesus. Ima- imagine what your life would then look like. Imagine if you actually lived a life that if an outsider looking in, Paul himself looking in, as he says, I'm hoping to hear this report from you, Philippians, if he was looking in on your life, he's able to say, yep, that's up, that's up to snuff. Yep, that life right there, good job. Keep progressing. As a manager checking in, if he was able to say, oh, you're doing exactly what you need to do. And, and his standard for evaluating that was the gospel itself. Imagine what your life would be like if that was true of you. How much more joyful it would be. I mean, if you became a walking promotion of heaven's culture and heaven's king through the way that you spoke to others and treated others, the way you responded to stressful situations, a manner of life worthy of the gospel is a way of life that is just more joyful than the other things out there that are promising you happiness. It's just better. The life of love, grace, mercy, compassion, truth, and righteousness is a happier life than a life of judgment, harshness, falsehood, apathy, and sin. But more than that, there is so much joy. I take deep comfort in this. Every time my conscience works against me and guilt starts to set in, about the fact that I'm not what I should be. I'm not where I should be. What's wrong with me? Every time that sits in, I'm so comforted by this truth. There's so much joy in knowing that no matter where you are in this journey, God himself will see to it that this place you're currently in is not where you'll end up. You will continue to progress in the faith. And this spiritual progression doesn't depend on the strength of your faith or the depths of your knowledge. Every single one of us can reach the purpose of the Christian journey. Every single one of us can develop a way of life that meets the gospel standard. And this journey, it is a marathon. Do not not count yourself out if right now you're not following Jesus as you should. Don't do it. God doesn't count you out. Do not count yourself out. This journey is a marathon, and we're not all in the same place in this this race. We're in different places. And by the way, some of us are going to finish this marathon in strides, and we admire those Christians, right? We admire them. They're just stride after stride after stride of deep faith in the Lord all the way until they finish their race. But you know what some of us are going to do? And stop thinking that you're a failure if this is true of you. Some of us are going to crawl across the finish line. We're going to be beaten down and we're going to be exhausted and we're going to be just inching our way to the end. Just inch by inch. Not even step by step. Crawling our way. But that's not where our confidence is. And whether we're, we're strong and we're, we have big strides at the end or we're weak and, and we're crawling in our pursuit of Jesus. That's not where our confidence is. You know where our confidence is? Where Paul's was, the beginning of this letter, what he says in verse 6. Please put your eyes on it in verse 6. What's he say? I'm sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why we progress. This is why we keep moving forward on this journey, because of our confidence that God himself will bring us there. It is in his strength, it is in, by his grace that we will finish this journey. We will be able to develop a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Okay, so that's, that's where we're headed. That's the, that's the end. That's the purpose. That's the goal of the journey. And that's much joy to be had there. But second, there are means to get there. Joy in the journey's means. We see that in the rest of this little section. The journey of the Christian life is also joyful because of what it requires. And that's strange. Requirements don't usually evoke joy, but, but these do. You see, Paul shares these means to the gospel-worthy life onto the backdrop of opposition and suffering that the Philippian believers were experiencing. And, and we're going to talk about it in a second. We don't know exactly what was going on. But there's suffering and there's opposition. There are adversaries. There is conflict that's, that's happening here. And so he shares, this is what it's going to take. If you're going to develop this type of life, this type of culture, it's going to take these three things. And, and here, he gives them as commands, or I'm going to give them as commands to you. The first is to stand firm. You want to develop a life that's worthy of the gospel? You have to stand firm. Here's what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. See, we cannot live a gospel-worthy life if we're going to quit. And that's what we're prone to do. We don't see any growth in our lives. We, we've fallen into the trap of sin. Maybe we've, we've uh, you know, unearthed a, a bad, sinful habit that we thought was buried and gone. And we just look at our lives and we're like, I mean, I, I just can't cut it. You know, I, I believe in Jesus, I guess, but, I, you know, I just can't do this. And you quit. And Paul says, you, can't, you cannot develop a way of life that is worthy of the gospel if you quit. You have to stick it out. You have to stand firm. You have to persevere. And we're tempted to quit in, in so many different ways. We're tempted to compromise on biblical truths due to personal feelings or social pressure. We may be just too comfortable with, with certain sinful habits to put them to death. I don't want to put it to death. I like it. I, I don't want to stop doing it. It makes me feel good. I know, I know I'm not supposed to do it. I don't care. I like it. We don't say that stuff out loud, but we think it. And, and so we're tempted to quit. We, we may be too captivated by the various idols of control or success to actually promote the gospel in our lives. For the Philippians in particular, it was allegiance to Lord Caesar that was really alluring, alluring and, and tempting. And there was a lot of social pressure associated with it. It was coming into conflict with allegiance to Lord Jesus. And so in order to live a life as worthy citizens of heaven, they're going to need to stand firm. And, and he says, stand firm in one spirit. Now, here's what we need to understand there. When I first read it, the, the way that it comes across, it's like, oh, like there's a shared spirit like in the group, like, you know, stand firm together in this vein. Um, but that's not really what he's getting at. Every time Paul uses this type of language, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. So he's essentially saying, stand firm in the Spirit. The gospel-worthy life, then, 
is entirely dependent on our sticking with the Holy Spirit. Sticking with Him, standing firm, persevering in the Spirit. It's, it's our ability to stand firm, and it's based on the Holy Spirit's work. And what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Spirit do? Man, that'd be a great trivia question for us. We don't think about the Holy Spirit ever, ever. We just, we just don't. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit gives us new life, right? The Spirit comes and, and dwells within us. The Spirit draws us together as a church. The Spirit applies the work of Jesus on the cross to our lives. And we are called to stand firm against any kind of attack, any kind of attack on us or on the gospel, relying on the inner work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this, this is an encouraging command. It's free of burdens. It's not easy to stand firm, but in whose power are you standing firm? You see, there's so much in life that could cause us to veer off course. But there is superior power in the Spirit to help us develop a gospel-worthy life. The Philippians, they're not asked to just dig down deep in their own hearts, like just summon the willpower to stand firm. Stand firm in yourself. Stand firm in your strength. Stand firm in your wisdom. As somebody says, stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm in the spirit. Their resolve to resist Rome's Caesar-centered culture, to adopt heaven's Christ-centered culture, rested not in their strength. It rested in what God had done and was doing in their lives through the Holy Spirit. Here's what this means. Here's just a simple takeaway. If, if it, you know, all this talk about the Spirit is, is just shooting a little bit over your head. Listen, all this means is that this, this life, a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel, it's doable. It's doable. If it sounds so daunting to you, that I, I mean, I can't live that way. Like, not, not the way my life has gone so far. He's saying, yes, you can. Just stand firm in the Spirit. Just, just tether yourself, connect yourself to the Spirit. It's so doable. Remain tethered to Him in prayer, meditation on the Scriptures. You want to know how to remain uh, connected to the Holy Spirit? I don't know how to do that. Pray. Just do it. Like, no questions, no caveats. But well, what about... Please start praying. That's, that's the answer. Please start meditating on Scripture. You, if you want to have a sense of the, of the Spirit indwelling you, you, you're never going to feel that or sense that apart from prayer and meditation on God's Word. It's how it works. You're standing in a room and it's dark. Man, it's never light in here. I wish I could experience that. Light switch, buddy. Flip it. Ah, light. You know, it doesn't quite work like that spiritually, but you cannot have a sense of the Spirit's strength or presence apart from prayer and meditation on the Scriptures. It can't happen. The Spirit's not bound to those things, but those are the means through which we do have a sense of the Spirit's presence. So stand firm in the Spirit, and that will help you develop a gospel-worthy life. All right, second, second thing we should do, second means. Strive together. Stand firm, strive together. So he says here in verse 27, uh, standing firm in one spirit. Then he says at the end of it, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says here that the gospel-worthy life requires us to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. All right, now this does not come natural to many of us. We are all, in one way or another, drawn to a solo Christianity. We pride ourselves in an individualistic faith. And we, we may even believe that our Christian journey is a personal journey. And it's not really anybody else's business. I mean, I'll, I'll share parts of it with you as I come to church and we do some life together. But it's really me. It's up to me. It's my personal responsibility to develop and, and grow my faith. And there's a sense in which that's true. But we can't develop a manner of life worthy of the gospel completely on our own. You can't do it. If you look at your life right now and you're like, no, that's not up to snuff. That's not, that, that is not... Uh, meeting the standard of the gospel and then you look at how you're practicing your Christianity I would wager that you're trying to practice your Christianity by yourself because most of us do that if, if, if we're not practicing it at all if we are trying to practice it and we're doing it by ourselves and we're not connecting ourselves to the community of faith it's going to be difficult to, to grow our faith it will be hard it'll be hard to develop this manner of life There is very little potential for joy in a solo Christian journey. Very little. And there is much potential for joy in a corporate Christian journey. So Paul's calling us to a united corporate striving. Striving side by side. This is the vocabulary and language of of teamwork, of of soldiers, of athletes. And this this imagery of striving side by side, it, it would have called to mind for the Philippians, the Roman soldiers that they would have seen marching in lockstep for the advancement of the Roman Empire. They would have seen this frequently, the military regiments walking side by side in, in their city. And so Paul knew that the success of the church in Philippi depended on the teamwork and the camaraderie that you would have seen in those Roman military ranks. But he shows us the stakes are way higher than the military exploits of the Roman Empire. The faith of the gospel was on the line. You see what he says? With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, the faith of the gospel, not your personal faith in Jesus, but the faith was on the line, the spread, the growth, the advancement of the gospel in the gospel-worthy lives of God's people depended on a corporate striving. And so this is what Paul wanted them to embody as citizens of heaven living in Philippi. He wanted them to mimic those Roman soldiers spiritually, lock arms, strive, work, be disciplined, side by side for the sake of the faith. He's calling each one of us to a culture of unity under the sole purpose of spreading the news about Jesus. And this is the beauty of the Christian journey. We are called into a community of people who may be very little like us, but have the most important thing in common with us. The gospel is our unifying principle, and it is powerful enough to bring a group of people together from all kinds of different backgrounds into one body to contend for the one faith together, side by side, using the different gifts, the different callings, the unique roles that we all have, but all working for the same cause, the 
sake of the faith of the gospel. Our striving testifies to the worthiness of the gospel. Not striving to spread the faith. Not striving for the sake of the faith of the gospel is to treat it as cheap and worthless. The gospel and its promotion through our lives is our most worthy cause as a church. It's our most worthy cause for the gospel to advance in our lives, for the gospel to advance through us so that other people would hear and believe in Jesus of Nazareth. It is worth all of our sweat and all of our blood and all of our tears. It is worth all of our gritty discipline. It is worth any amount of effort and striving and creativity, anything that it takes for the gospel, the true gospel, to spread and take root in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our city. I love what John Piper says about it. John Piper says, None of us will be measured against the decathlon powers of an Apostle Paul or William Carey or John Wesley. This hit me hard when I read this. Get ready for the rest of this quote. We will be measured against what we could have done. Not by what someone else could have done. And we all can do something if we love the gospel of the glory of Christ. Are we striving? Are we striving side by side for the sake of the faith of the gospel? Could you say in truth that you are striving for the sake of the faith? What would it look like for us to strive side by side? You know, maybe it's as simple as helping one another grow in Christ. Just personally, individually, you're meeting with someone, reading scripture, praying. Maybe you attend a prayer gathering that we have. It may mean going on a mission trip or supporting a team that's going to support our mission partners. It might mean in a life group just discussing this very topic. Hey guys, like, how, what can we do? How can we strive and work together to advance the gospel? What can we do? It may, it may just be that. But if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, it's going to require work from us. Grace from God, work from us. And we will need to strive side by side to put the gospel on display through our words of evangelism and our acts of righteousness. Then the gospel-worthy life will be tangible. It will be ours. Uh, one final thing he says here. So he says, stand firm. He says, strive together. And then he says, be courageous. Be courageous. If you are going to develop a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel, you have to do these three things. And finally, be courageous. This is what he says in verse 28. Well, backing up to verse 27. He wants to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Fear of others, fear of suffering, fear of opposition, fear of loss, fear of failure, fear of anything that opposes the gospel is a roadblock on our journey toward the gospel-worthy life. The Philippians, as I said, they're experiencing some form of opposition and persecution. We don't know the specifics. We do know there was growing opposition to Christianity in all corners of the Roman Empire, but especially in concentrated cities like Philippi. And the main reason was due to the fact that Christians would not and could not bow the knee to Caesar. 
Emperor Nero could be respected. Nero could be prayed for, but he could not be worshipped. Not by the Christians who claimed Christ as Lord. So the Philippians had reason to be afraid. They were coming into tension with the authorities of Rome. They were coming into tension with their friends, with their employers. There was much to lose. How could they not be afraid? When we live with courage in the face of opposition of any kind, whether persecution or even just your garden variety temptation, we actually put two realities on full display. And this is how Paul answers that question. How can we not be afraid when so many scary things are out there? How can we not be afraid? Well, because suffering has two effects. Here's, here's what I want, want to show you in, in closing here. Our courage is a sign and our suffering is a gift. Our courage is a sign. Look what he says in verse 28. It's, this is just startling. He essentially says, don't be afraid in anything by your opponents. Why? It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. And it's a clear sign to you of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. First, our courage is a sign. Paul says that this is a clear sign. What is? Your fearlessness, not being frightened, your courage. It is a sign to those who would do you harm of their coming destruction and your coming salvation. D.A. Carson explains it like this. Your change in character, your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. Our courage in the face of opposition of any kind signals our salvation because when you don't fear even the worst form of persecution imaginable, what you're really saying is that your confidence is in God. Only those resting in the sovereign goodness and grace and salvation of God can be courageous in the face of temptation, hardships, and even death itself. And that's where we see that not only faith, but even suffering is a gift. It has been granted to you that you would believe in Jesus. It has been granted to you that you would suffer for his sake. One author put it this way. Faith and persecution are often a package gift. When the flame of faith shines in a dark place, the darkness will try to douse that faith and snuff it out. But God writes a persecution story for his church so that mankind will be pointed back to the greatest story, the death and resurrection of Christ. See, this is especially true in places where religious freedom isn't a reality, but it's also true for us. Suffering itself is hijacked by the grace of God to bring us joy and to bring him glory. Anytime we suffer, 
And any time the church faces opposition or persecution, the story of the gospel is put on display again and again. So I want to encourage you this morning to stand firm, to strive together, and to be courageous. All in pursuit of a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Be citizens of heaven right where you are. And remember that wherever you are in the journey, there is progress to be made and joy to be had in Jesus.